Jesus and his disciples had just finished with the Lord's Supper. They sang a hymn, the only time in Scripture that we see Jesus singing. And then they went out into the night on their way to the Mount of Olives. Jesus was speaking to them, and he was telling them some things that were very hard to hear. And he said to them, all of you tonight are going to fall away. But then he said, be of cheer, because I'm going to rise again. And after the resurrection, I'll meet you in Galilee. But the disciples didn't hear any of that. They only heard that they were all going to fall away. And they disputed with Jesus. And Peter especially said, Lord, even if all the rest of them fall away, I'll never fall away. I'll serve you and follow you, even if it's to my death. Jesus told Peter, Peter, even before the rooster crows tonight, you're going to deny me. They make their way toward this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Really, it's on the slope of the Mount of Olives. It means oil press. They would prepare the olive oil there. And it was a retreat where Jesus would love to go and to pray, to be alone with his Father. And so as they come into the garden, Jesus leaves most of the disciples there. You remember, Judas had already left them to go and gather the mob that would come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus talks to the rest of them. He says, you guys wait here and, and pray. And then he takes his inner band, Peter, James, and John, and they go a little bit farther. And they sit down, and Jesus says, wait here, sit and pray and wait. And Jesus walks on farther. And oh, if we could just grasp a little bit of the agony that Jesus felt in his body, in his mind, and in his heart. He was in such deep agony that he told his disciples that it was as though he were near death. And Jesus falls on the ground, and he lifts his arms and his face to heaven, and he cries out to his Father, and he uses the term that in Jesus' native tongue means Daddy, Abba, Father. If there's any way, Father, to let this cup pass away from me, this hour that I'm in, may that happen. And yet these response of Jesus was this, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It was the same thing that Jesus had taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer. So Jesus finishes his praying in deep agony. In fact, an angel comes to minister to him. He's in such grief. His sweat is like drops of blood. And he comes back to his disciples to find them asleep. And he says to them, could you not wait just one hour and pray with me? Jesus is wounded because they have fallen asleep. And he says to Peter, Peter, pray. Wake up and pray, lest you fall into temptation. And so for a second time, Jesus goes off by himself alone. And he cries the same prayer to the Father. And there's the same response. Nevertheless, it's not my will, but it's yours be done. Jesus comes back a second time to the soldiers, or to the disciples, and he finds them sleeping again. And this time there's no response. Their eyes were heavy with sleep, and they don't know what to say. And so for a third time, Jesus goes back, and he prays alone. He prays the same prayer again to his Father. And he has the same response from his heart. Not my will, but yours be done. He walks back to the disciples. They're sleeping again. And he says to them, sleep 
and take your rest sometime else. Now the hour has come. And barely noticed by any of them, Judas had come into the garden. And along with him, this great mob with their clubs and their swords and their torches. From the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they all came. And Judas was with them. Everything had been prearranged. Judas told them, the one that I go to and give a kiss, that's the one. You arrest him. You seize him. Judas walks up to Jesus, calls him rabbi, teacher. Jesus looked at him and said, friend. But it's not the intimate word for friend. This is more like a companion or a comrade. He says, friend, do what you have to do. Judas kisses him on the cheek. And the mob comes in, and they seize Jesus. His followers don't know what to do. A couple of them are armed. Peter takes out his sword, and he thrusts it at Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Malchus ducks, and he only gets part of his ear. And Jesus says, don't do that. That would never fulfill the promise of the prediction in the Old Testament. That can't get the job done, Jesus said. And so he touches Malchus' ear. And heals him. And the mob seizes Jesus. Capture in your heart for a moment the difficulty of that. They begin to take him away. And what do his disciples do? They do what Jesus had prophesied that they were going to do. They leave Jesus and they flee. And the mob takes Jesus off first to Annas' house. He's the father-in-law to Caiaphas, the high priest, and eventually they go to Caiaphas for the trial. Can you feel the tension? tension that surrounded the mob, the soldiers as they're taking Jesus away, the weight of the disciples scattering. Yet Peter, he follows behind at a distance. He enters the courtyard of Caiaphas and he's by the fire. He's keeping watch to see what might happen, intrigued scared. Jesus knows that he's near. With the words that he had spoken to Peter earlier about his denial, looming the impending rooster that would crow. The mic of a trial is beginning, has started. The religious leaders are there, the council, to bring false testimony against Jesus. They wanted to put him to death. They needed the accusations and testimonies to be, to be true. Things weren't lining up. Stories weren't adding up. Frustration is building in the council and the people that are gathered there. As the tension's rising, two more men come to give testimony. This Jesus... He said he could destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. 
Can you hear the voices in the room getting louder and louder and louder? The high priest, almost at a shout. Don't you have an answer? What is it that these men testify? Jesus is silent. No doubt creating more frustration and anger within the council and for the high priest. In a burst of anger from the high priest's mouth, I adjure you by the living God, tell us you are the Christ, Son of God. Jesus said to him in a determined voice, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Enraged in a dramatic display of Jesus' response, the high priest tears his robes off. The groans from the council could be heard throughout the courtyard and the gates. The high priest accuses Jesus of blasphemy and asks for a verdict. The verdict the council had been waiting for all night. He deserves death. He deserves death. In their own act of judgment, they spit on him. They hit him. They strike him. Morning has come and the verdict has been given. In the distance, you can hear the rooster crow. Peter watching in the courtyard, not wanting to be implicated, denies his Lord. He makes eye contact with Jesus. Overwhelmed with grief, Peter leaves, weeping bitterly. Jesus knows his failure. He had told him that it would happen, but he would restore him in a few days. His betrayer, Judas, unable to deal with what he's done, hangs himself, fulfilling the prophecy in Jeremiah. Knowing they can't carry out this capital punishment that's been given, they take him to Pilate to carry out the death sentence. Pilate, probably annoyed with the early morning intrusion, questions the council, questions Jesus. The council gives their case, trying to convict him, hoping to persuade Pilate. Pilate asks Jesus if he's king of the Jews. Jesus responds, You've said so. Pilate, he's finding no fault with Jesus. Building the tension with the religious leaders and the Pharisees, the high priests, the crowd that's there. Seeking to dismiss the crowd and the council, determining Jesus is from Galilee, he sends Jesus on to Herod. Herod initially received Jesus joyfully, happily, hoping to see a miracle. Jesus, he's, he's not willing. He refuses to entertain or respond. Herod, probably frustrated, he's finding no fault with Jesus as well, and his toy is not working. He's not doing what he asked. He's not seeing any miracles. 
he sends him back to Pilate. Pilate, knowing it's custom to release a Passover pardoned prisoner, is finding no fault with Jesus and offers the king of the Jews to the crowd. They're having none of it. They want him dead. They want Barabbas, the criminal, the murderer. Pilate wants to release Jesus, but the crowd is screaming, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! Even Pilate's wife knew this was wrong. She had had dreams. She warned him. The pressure was great from the crowd. Pilate is afraid in an attempt to appease. He has Jesus beaten. The soldiers put a crown of thorns on his head, purple robe on his back. They're beating him. The crowd's becoming intense. They wanted Jesus dead. They wanted him dead. One final, one final attempt. Pilate, Jesus being silent, is questioned about where he's from. Pilate's telling Jesus, I have the authority to put you to death. Jesus speaks. Can you imagine the hearers as he's getting ready to speak? You have no authority over me at all unless it's given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has greater sin. Pilate brings Jesus one final time before the crowd to release him. They insist that if he's released, Pilate is no friend of Caesar. Jesus is claimed to be king, opposed to Caesar, so they say. In that moment of manipulation, Pilate releases Barabbas hands Jesus over to be crucified. Once Pilate had handed Jesus over to be crucified, his soldiers treated Jesus with impersonal contempt and uh, creative cruelty, stripping him naked, beating him. They covered his bloodied back with Herod's royal robe and made him a crown of thorns that they pressed into his brow. And they took turns pretending to bow down to him, laughing and shouting, Hail, King of the Jews! And spitting on him, laughing at him. And once they were done with that, they marched him out into the streets to carry his cross outside the city to a hill called the Place of the Skull. Jesus looked so despised and rejected on that walk that people hid their faces from him. And soldiers could see that they had taken Jesus' strength too soon, and so they ordered the nearest man to take up his cross and follow. When they arrived at the skull, one of the soldiers brought out a sign that he had been carrying, the sign that would detail the, the crimes of the dying man. And when the chief priests saw this sign, they were furious and they, and they were mad because Pilate had made this sign and they went to him and, and they were angry because this sign said, King of the Jews in three languages. 
And they insisted that it should only say that he, he, he claimed to be king of the Jews. But Pilate, who was a little smug, I'm sure, and already a little annoyed with these priests, said, what I have written, I have written. And while the chief priests were arguing over the wording of the sign, the soldiers were preparing Jesus for crucifixion. Two convicted thieves actually arrived at the skull with Jesus, each carrying a cross of his own. And together in the crowd around watching this scene, there was John the disciple, Jesus' mother Mary, Mary's sister, Mary Magdalene. And they were gathering their courage as they went along, watching helplessly as these soldiers drove large nails through Jesus' hands into the crossbeam and then drove a nail through his feet. And then they nailed Pilate's sign above his head, the King of the Jews. And as waves of agony swept over Jesus' hanging body, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers started dividing the dying men's clothes among themselves. One soldier picked up Jesus' tunic and treating it like a prize, and they cast lots to see who would win it. And while the soldiers quarreled over the clothes and the leaders quarreled over the wording of a sign, John the disciple and Jesus' mother Mary were focused on Jesus himself with breaking hearts. Mary watched as her miracle child Her boy, her Lord, suffered such agony. John, who had fled in fear when Jesus was arrested and now traded his fear for grief over the suffering of his dearest friend and his master. Jesus looked down at these two that he loved, wrapped in each other's arms, and he said to Mary, his mother, Woman, this is your son now. And to John, he said, John, this is your mother now. Even as they wept over losing him, he gave them to each other. And the soldiers, they just kept humiliating him. And they shouted, if you are the son of God, come down from there. Save yourself, king of Israel. Come down and we'll believe in you. But what they didn't know is that Jesus could have come down. He could have said a word and made it all stop, like when he stilled the storm and healed many and fed 5,000. It wasn't the nails that held him there. It was love. Then one of the crucified thieves next to him started in with his own words of contempt and mocking and said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Save us. But as the second thief, the other thief watched this, something changed inside of him. He had watched Jesus take this brutality of his captors and tormentors. He took that brutality and he took it to God in the form of a prayer for mercy. And then he watched this man give his grieving mother his treasured friend. And the crowds, they mocked the idea that Jesus could be king, but He endured this torture 
with such supernatural strength and compassion. So as this thief watched this glorious grace with which Jesus received his death, his heart broke, and he rebuked the other thief for mocking Jesus. He said, do you not fear God, since you indeed are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we are here justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he looked to his king hanging next to him. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and he said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And hours into this crucifixion, uh, a strange darkness crept over the land, even though it was the middle of the day. And it lingered for hours, filling the crowds with an eerie apprehension. And in the midst of that darkness, with labored and hard-won breath, Jesus cried out a quotation from uh, the beginning of a song that his people had sung for almost a thousand years. A song of suffering, but also a song of hope. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew that the full force of the storm of God's fierce anger against evil was coming down on his own son rather than on his people. It was the only way God could destroy sin without destroying his children whose hearts were filled with sin. And Jesus bore it all willingly fully and finally. And so he looked out at the remaining crowds and he said, it is finished. He had accomplished what he came to do. In love, he bore our full curse. There was no debt left to pay. He had paid it all and he had nothing left to give. And so he screamed out and gasped, quoting another one of his people's ancient psalms, this time a psalm of redemption and love. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with these final words, he hung his head, breathed his last breath, and died. The worst and the best of all human deaths. Then a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was actually one of those members of that Jewish council that had just tried so hard to kill him and succeeded. This man worked up his courage and went to Pilate to ask him if he could have Jesus' body so he could bury it. You see, this man was secretly a disciple of Jesus. And he provided a, a stone tomb and he helped personally prepare Jesus' body for burial and they placed him in the tomb. And then they rolled a heavy stone in front of the entrance and the authorities ordered soldiers to stand guard so that no one could get in or out. It was late, <clears throat> it was late on Friday when Jesus died, 
late in the afternoon, and so Sabbath was approaching for Jews. It was a day of rest. And so they had taken the body and moved it to this tomb of Joseph's. Women from Galilee followed him, all of his ministry. They supported him financially. They were loyal to him. And they watched him die. They lingered at the cross. When others ran away, they stayed close. They watched as he was taken off of the cross. They watched as they pulled the nails out of his hands and pried them from his feet. They saw his bloody, bruised, abused body. They watched closely as men carried the limp corpse of their Savior to a garden close by to where the crucifixion had happened. And it was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. They watched as they hurriedly, Sabbath approaching. Sabbath begins in the evening, right at sunset. That's the Jewish beginning of a new day. So they hurriedly washed his body, wrapped it in linen, cloth, put a face cloth over his face and head and put him in the tomb and rolled the stone and sealed it. Jesus' dead corpse laid in the tomb a short time on Friday, all day on Sabbath day, and part of Sunday until the early morning hours. On Sunday morning, first day of the week before dawn, these women from Galilee made their way to the tomb. They're bringing spices that they had purchased probably Saturday night after the Sabbath. They had observed and kept the Sabbath according to the commandment and rested on the Sabbath day. They brought their spices. Who were these women? Mary from Magdala, which is a village right near the Sea of Galilee. And she had been set free of demons and Christ had changed her life and she loved him so. And she was loyal to him. And there was Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and, and Salome, the mother of James and John, Zebedee's wife. And Mary, the wife of Cleopas. This may be Mary's sister or sister-in-law. Might be Joseph's sister. And then there was Joanna, the wife of Cusa, who was a servant in Herod's for King Herod. These women will be the first to hear the resurrection story. These women will be the first to experience Easter. And these women are the first to be given Easter's message. And this is part of their story. It's told from different perspectives in the gospel. As they arrive, they don't all arrive at the same time, and they all have different encounters. But they all wondered this one thing, this one worry. Who will roll the stone away for us? It's extremely large, extremely heavy. 
Perhaps it weighed two tons, six feet in diameter, a, th a foot thick, sealed with a seal, guarded by Roman soldiers. But some of the women who arrived very early saw something that not all of them saw. The earth began to shake. And all of a sudden, an angel, the angel of the Lord, came down out of heaven. And he rolled back the stone, not to let Jesus out, but to let the women in. He rolled back the stone and sat on top of it. And those guards quaked in fear like dead men. <laughs> they said his appearance was like light his radiance so brilliant other women arrive and they have different testimonies they come to the tomb and it's opened and they go inside there's a young man and he's sitting there where the stone bed was for the deceased and the body's gone Jesus is not there and this young angel is there and they're all amazed and awestruck and the angel said I know you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified, but he's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Behold, look at the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples. He's going on into Galilee, and you'll, he'll meet you there. Others said, angels said to them, Why, why, why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he spoke to you in Galilee? Remember his words. Go tell his disciples. Mary Magdalene, she came and saw the empty tomb, and she saw the body wasn't there, and she was so perplexed and so disturbed, she ran as fast as she could to find Peter and John. And she tells them, and she's so disturbed, They've moved his body, and I don't know where they've taken him. And Peter and John take off in a foot race, running together. Mary, she can't keep up with him. She strays behind, weeping, disturbed. Peter and John run together, but before long, John just kicks in. He's younger and faster, and he runs faster than Peter. He gets to the tomb. When he gets there, he looks inside, but he doesn't enter. And all of a sudden, Peter gets there, and he just rushes right in. And there's the linens laying over here, and the grave clothes, but the face mask, the, the face cloth is rolled up carefully and set over at one side. John enters in and looks. He sees. He believes something has happened. But it's hard to know. And the men go home. Mary, Mary Magdalene arrives. When she arrives, she's outside the tomb, just weeping, brokenhearted, standing outside the tomb, weeping. Her heart's crushed. Not only did her Lord die, but now they've, they've desecrated his tomb and stolen away his body. She looks inside the tomb, and there are two angels, one at the head 
of the concrete of the stone bed and the other at the foot. And they ask her a question. Woman, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And all of a sudden, she senses someone behind her. And she turns. She thought it was the gardener. She turns and she, it's not the gardener, it's Jesus. She turns and she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus said, Mary. And he, she knew that voice. And she said in Hebrew, Rabboni, teach, master. And she clings to him. He says, Mary, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. You go tell my brothers, I ascend to my father and their father. I ascend to my God and their God. And Mary comes to the disciples and she says to them, I have seen the Lord. It's real. He's alive. Man, that night, Easter night in the evening. They're gathered in a house. The doors are locked for fear of the Jews. And all of a sudden, Jesus is right there in their midst. How awesome would that be? And he said, peace be unto you. Shalom. And then he said, look, it's me. Look at my hands. Look at my side. It's me. I'm not a ghost. Anybody got some fish? And he ate the fish. And then he said, my peace I give to you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. He left. And they were all in the room. And all of a sudden, one of the disciples who wasn't there was knocking at the door. They opened the door. It's Thomas. Tom, he's alive. No, he's not. Yes, he is. I don't believe it. Tom, he's alive. I won't believe it until I see with my own eyes the scars in his hands or his side. I will not believe it. Eight days later, one week, on a Sunday evening, same house, nearly the same time, Thomas is there, and Jesus comes into the room again. Ha! Huh. And he says, peace be unto you. And then he said, Tom. Thomas, do I see you in the crowd here? Tom, come here. Put forth your fingers and see my hands. Put forth your hands and see my side. Tom, don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And Tom said, my Lord and my God, you are Lord. You are God. You've defeated death. You are God. Father, may we come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, our Savior and our Lord.
What does this story mean? We've relived and retold the story. What does it mean? Why was it written? Listen close. This is so important. John 20, 31 says, But these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the truth. Number one, this story should make you be convinced God loves you. He loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Secondly, it should teach us that sin is serious, sin is costly, and sin is deadly. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus died our death so that we may not have to have live in death. Thirdly, it should teach us that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One, the Savior of all the world. And He died for our sins. Jesus paid for our sins. God made Him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become righteous. This is God's love. Also, it teaches us that death is defeated. Just what we sang. Because Jesus Christ rose again and defeated death. So we have hope. Woo! Hope beyond the grave for all who trust in him. Some dear friends of ours. In most recent days and during this year, have died. But if they're in Jesus, they're alive. They're alive. And we have hope. But it's for those who have faith in Jesus. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. Trust in me. That means turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus alone as your Savior. And when you do, you will be saved. All who call on him will be saved. He loves you. Will you repent of your sin and trust Jesus as your Savior? Would you bow your heads with me? If today you are trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord for the first time putting your life in his hands, asking him to forgive you of your sins and be your Lord and Master, would you mind just raising your hand with me? Anybody? Some? Anyone? Then today, I want to pray for you. 
Father, for those today, for the first time realizing God's great love for them, I pray they'll pray a prayer like this. Dear God, I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you died for me. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died my death I deserve. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to come into my life and be the Lord and master of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed a prayer like that today, and you want to let us know, make that public, share with us about this commitment. Our pastors are going to be standing right here. Right one of our pastors standing right over here by the piano. One right here by the cross. Today, would you come and talk with them? Tell them of your commitment today. Stand with me. Father, today, have your way in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Easter. Happy Easter, Hugh. Let's go and tell others the greatest news in all the world. Amen.